Welcome to Climify, the podcast that connects climate scientists and design educators together so that we can help combat our climate crisis in our classrooms. The discussions on this program are geared to help you climify your syllabi to assign projects that not only teach design fundamentals, but also can have a positive impact on our climate. This episode is brought to you by Renourish. Renourish is your one-stop online resource for sustainable design and systems thinking strategies and tools for the graphic designer. Hey, um, can, can I interrupt here just for uh, one second? I guess. I just wanted to say how excited I am to be back again hosting season two of Climify. I've put a lot of time and effort into this and uh, I really hope all of you enjoy this season and, and I'm glad you're back. The, the guests that I have this year, uh, I put them together kind of like a puzzle. They're, they're supposed to fit together episode by episode. And there's still going to be a lot of great resources that we're putting on the website for you to use in your classrooms again this fall and beyond. So definitely go to the climatesunners.org forward slash edu so you can see those assignments. And can I continue? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. You can learn more about Renourish at their website, renourish.org, or you can follow them on Twitter and Facebook at Renourish. I'm Jacqueline Gill, and I work as a paleoecologist at the University of Maine, where I focus on how species responded to climate change and extinction during the last ice age. You can learn more about this work at Twitter. I'm at Jacqueline Gill, and also at our lab's website, beastlab.net. Yes, that is Jacqueline Gill, the first guest on the second season of Climify. And yeah, I'm Eric Benson. I'm back to host again for season two. And I'm excited about Jacqueline because I feel like I've known Jacqueline for years, mainly because I've been following her for years on Twitter. Her tweets are educational and entertaining. Well, I reached out to her before I started recording this season to see if she was interested, and we had a preliminary Zoom call a month or so ago, and it felt like when I was talking with her that she was kind of an old friend. I feel like I'd known her for quite some time, and we had a lot of things in common from obviously climate, but science fiction, popular culture, teaching, academia, all those things that you would expect. And when she said, Eric, yeah, I'll be on your show. I was ecstatic. First of all, Jacqueline is a podcaster. Uh, she did a program called Warm Regards that ended a, a year or so ago. And big fan of the show. She she knows what she's doing, not only there, but in her own research. And I felt like, gosh, she's like the perfect guest to kick off this season. So here she is. I hope you enjoy my interview with Jacqueline. Hi, Jacqueline. Uh, welcome to Climify. I'm excited that you uh, agreed to, to be on the program. Uh, another podcaster um, herself, and um, I, I'm glad that you're able to make some time for me. I'm really excited that your podcast exists for me to be a part of, because I think this is so, <laughs> this is such an important topic. 
I'm sure you know that very well. And how does it feel to be on the other side of the mic in this case? Uh, I, I'm having a little bit more empathy for my guests now. <laughs> not that I don't <laughs> usually, but it's like, oh, I'm in the hot seat. <laughs> well, I'll try not to make it such a hot seat today. Um, you were a podcaster on, um, it was called Warm Regards, right? Yeah, it was one of the first climate change podcasts we started in 2016, just before the election. Uh, and uh, yeah, oh it, um, yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> like in retrospect, yeah. if we'd known. <laughs> wow, you were like um, right on time for that. Yeah, it was. Um, it was an interesting time. It was an interesting four years, um, and it was a really. It was just really fun. I felt like we were able to have these really um, personal conversations about climate change and not just use this as an opportunity to do another kind of climate explainer, but just an audio form, but really to use just to leverage the messiness of the very human and emotional and complex responses around climate change. Yeah. I listened to a few of them and you had some really, I think, noteworthy guests, prolific guests. What would be the right adjective there? Um, and they, it was great audio, great. I'm jealous. I'm jealous of the audio that you guys were able to do. And um, geez, like the type of guests that you had on here, on there were really informative. I learned a lot from just the few episodes that I listened to. So I just want to thank you for that, that work you did. And uh, warm regards is no more. Is that what I hear? Yeah, we, uh, we decided to end after our last season, which um, we had this focus on data and looking beyond just the numbers, the graphs, and really thinking about the stories behind data, both in terms of how we collect data, um, what the data represent, how we communicate data, um, and how data is really, or data are um, really an opportunity for people to tell stories. And one of the interesting things that came out of that season was that despite the fact that we were focusing on this very quantitative um, theme, what we kept coming back to over and over again is that data don't really matter, at least when we're talking about things like um, moving the needle in terms of people's people's attitudes or their um, their interest in becoming more engaged in climate change. So we it was ostensibly a season about data, but it was really a season about stories and storytelling and empathy, which just kept coming up over and over and over again throughout that season. Yeah, that came up last season for me too. We talked to someone who worked in the Arctic. And he had some really amazing data, but how do you understand that data as, I don't know, just, just a normal person. And so from a design perspective, which is what um, I think the listeners of our show know more about is that storytelling for that visualization, that storytelling of the data and the importance of that. And so Gosh, that's another reason why I wanted you on the show, because just uh, what you learned from that season, I think, is going to be very valuable for us as educators on, on this program. It's, it's interesting that you bring that up, because when I've asked people what some of their favorite episodes were from that season, what episodes changed them or impacted them the most, one that comes up over and over again uh, is a series of conversations that we actually had with artists, including um, the Tempestry Project, which is uh, a group of people that essentially have come up with um, knitting patterns and they sell kits so that you can knit the warming stripes. If you're familiar with that concept, right? Yeah. Ed Hawkins warming stripes, yeah. which is one of the most simple and yet powerful visualizations of, of warming, right? Um, and turning that into knitting uh, uh, patterns as a way to have conversations with people, um, but also just as a way to 
bear witness to the climate of a particular place. And it's one of those things that, you know, if you were to ask me, okay, well, what does that do? What is that? How does that change the world? How does that get people to vote or get people to volunteer or to, you know, address their personal carbon footprint or whatever? Um, and I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to answer that question, but what it, it does is it makes climate real and personal. Um, you're literally translating it into something in front of you using your hands in this very visceral and tactile process. And there's, there's a lot to be said for just, like I said, witnessing or bearing witness, um, realizing and kind of accepting the degree of climate change that's already happened. And that's a starting point for a lot of people for thinking about how to do better going forward. So I think, yeah, design has a really important role to play in these conversations. And I think we're just starting to scratch the surface, really. Well, I'm glad to hear that because this is why this show exists, because I also feel like we've barely scratched the surface and design has, I think, a lot to offer to um, create the future I think we want. But before we go there, I want to take a, a little bit of a step back to learn more about you and how you became uh, a paleoecologist. Why did you choose that as a career? What led you to where you are now? Oh boy, you're going to regret asking this because oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, only because it's it's kind of this convoluted story, right? Um, I was I grew up as a child of the '80s and a teenager of the '90s. I like to say I was part of the Captain Planet generation, which definitely uh, dates me. Oh no, and, I'm, I'm right there with you. So yeah, so you know, being aware of these environmental problems, climate change was not really on our radar at that point. Um, as kids, um, we were thinking about things like the destruction of the ozone layer or the Amazon and uh, the extinction crisis, right? So we had this awareness, this really strong environmental awareness. And for me, you know, I, I went through my marine biology phase in school. I kind of hit a, had a crisis. I thought I was going to go into theater for a while. Um, and then I go into college. I have no idea what I want to do. I'm in a small liberal arts school that doesn't make me pick a major. Um, I have a strong environmental ethic and I'm not really sure what to do with it. As I took classes and as I was reading and as I was thinking about environmental challenges, I kept coming back to the sense of our relationship with nature, at least our, in the sense, being Western um, you know, patriarchal, uh, capitalist, um, extractivist. And where did that come from? Where did things go wrong? And so that sent me into anthropology and history to sort of look at the past. So I think I was already primed in, in a sense to think on these long-term scales. And the more I looked at those relationships through time, the more I became really interested in this long-term perspective. And then I started taking ecology and conservation courses and realizing that what I was learning in those classes really portrayed the static idea of nature that was very much in, um, in stark contrast to the longer term perspectives I was getting through history and anthropology, archaeology. And then I happened to um, take an ecology class. Uh, I was at College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor, Maine, which is basically in the backyard of Acadia National Park, right? That's where our labs were. I mean, it's an amazing place to yeah. be a student. And we went on this hike where we looked at these iconic sea cliffs. If you've ever been to Acadia, you, you know, thinking of otter cliffs, you know, the, the ocean surf kind of crashing against these big rocks. And then our professor took us up about 250 feet up Gorham Mountain 
And we saw the same kinds of features. And he, he kind of led us through this process of what are we looking at? Okay, well, these look like cliffs. All right, well, what do they remind you of? Well, what we just saw down at the ocean, how could that be, right? Mm-hmm. Well, obviously the ocean was here. Okay, well, why, how, when? And eventually we got to this idea that the glaciers, when they had come down out of the North, you know, the weight of all of that ice, which here would have been close to a mile thick, is so heavy that it depresses the crust of the earth. And as the ice retreats, it's like, it's sort of like sticking your thumb in the surface of a warm cake, right? Don't, don't do this because whoever (laughs) baked the cake will get mad. But you know, like if you're, if you're gentle enough, you can kind of push it down then slowly rebounds. Right. And that's literally what's happening with the earth's crust as the weight of all that ice is retreated. And so sea level is not this static thing, not just because it rises as ice caps melt, but because the actual literal crust of the earth in the places where the ice was, is still slowly rebounding, at least here in Maine. That's interesting. Yeah. And so this idea of, oh my gosh, everything I know about this moment is, this is just a snapshot in time. There's a lot more just dynamism to nature than I was led to believe with this sort of static balance of nature view that I'd been getting through some of my other courses. And that just opened up this rabbit hole and I dove right into it. And, um, you know, by the time later that year, I took a course with, we just happened to have a visiting geographer who taught a paleo environments course. And, um, she got a visiting scientist to come and take us out to a bog in Acadia. And we took a sediment core from that bog and it went from brown mud, brown mud, brown mud to gray clay. And if you're listening, you're probably like, wow, this is the most boring thing. (laughs) So fun. Um, But what that means is we went from our current warm period, right? The Holocene. And suddenly we were in the Pleistocene. The gray mud was from a cooler, drier time, a less productive ecosystem. It was, that was the ice age. And that's exactly what, you know, as it came up, this sort of change, this visual tactile change, you know, you could touch it. Uh, I was like, what is that? And the guy was like, that's the ice age. And the first thing I said was, well, can I touch it? And he was like, you can taste it. (laughs) Right. And so geologists are always like putting stuff in our mouths. Right. And so, um, so we literally took a little bit of this gray clay and put it against our tongue and felt the clay dissolve and felt the grit of the, the silts against our teeth. And, how that was different from putting a little bit of that organic brown mud in our mouth and it would just sort of disappear. Mm. And that moment of just, I just ate a little tiny piece of the ice age just changed me in, in ways that I can't. (laughs) And and if people are like, Oh, I still don't get it. Then that's why you're not a paleoecologist. Right. right, right. It's like a test, (laughs) right? If if that makes you like shiver, right. You know, you're you're on the right path. That was it. And, and it was like, just, I, I can't explain just how I how hooked I became on this idea of time scales, right? Just it just blew up my universe in ways that I imagine an astronomer feels when they look at the stars, right? For me, it's like suddenly closing my eyes and in my mind's eye, this reverse reel, like film reel, just playing back everything that had happened since the ice. Um and everything that had changed, the, the, the tundra, the forests arriving, the, um, the different plants becoming replaced by others, the mammoths wandering around and then disappearing, the first peoples walking on the landscape, all of those things, um, it was just, it was like a pole I could not resist. So that's a great like way to 
tell a story about what a paleocologist does. It's kind of like one of those movie um, previews, right? For like yeah. dinosaurs and then there's this and the tundra. Was that how you then said, obviously I got to do something about climate because you've seen it, you can see it. Yeah. Taste it. So what it, what it did for me was, um, you know, around the same time, uh, the movie a day after the day after tomorrow came out, right. which, and then an inconvenient truth. So the day after tomorrow came out a year before I graduated my undergrad, which incidentally, that movie did more to raise public awareness of climate change in the United States than the documentary film An Inconvenient Truth did. So that should tell you really? something about the power yeah. of storytelling and narrative, right? Yeah. yeah. And the lead of that film was a paleoclimatologist. <laughs> like, <laughs> when does that ever it happen? Right? Yeah, I know. It, it all felt like it felt, um, I felt like, you know, kismet, right? And, but in that, so that was the moment where I thought to myself, okay, Everything we're doing now, the decisions that we're making now are based on these really short-term understandings of nature, of people, of our relationships with nature. Um, we're not, you know, thinking like good ancestors, right? We're not thinking long-term and that lack of long-term thinking both, for, both backwards into the past to know where we've come from and also forwards into the future so that we know where we're going felt very much to me like it was the root of so many of our problems. And so whether we're talking about climate change or biodiversity, we have in the fossil record what we call these natural experiments, meaning the earth did the experiment for us. We, didn't, we don't get to set up like, here's earth with the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs and here's the earth without, right? No, that's not how, the, we don't get to do Petri dish experiments like my modern colleagues do, right? So we have these natural experiments that you know just happened in the past. When it comes to things like extinction, climate change, so we can ask ourselves, okay, if the earth warms this much, uh, can trees keep pace with that, right? Do they shift their ranges enough to keep, to keep track? Um, if an elephant goes extinct, what happens to the ecosystem? If right. people arrive and set fires, what happens to the ecosystem, right? So we, we can take that information from the past and we can use that so that we're not kind of blundering blindfolded into the future. We literally have this roadmap that the earth has left behind. And yeah, we have to use these forensic clues to kind of piece that together, that story. But this information I feel is tremendously valuable as we go into the future. Agreed. Wow. Uh, so with, with all of that work that you're doing, um, I follow you on Twitter. So I've been reading a lot of the things you've been writing and some of that stuff in the historical record, you know, the death of the dinosaurs or some negative stuff there. Um, obviously we could be facing some of this ourselves, but you're a very hopeful person. This is what I'm gathered from, <laughs> from, from Twitter. And you actually say like, I'm, you sort of brand yourself that way, right? It's a sort of like, hopeful musk oxen, climate musk oxen. What, what was that all about? Yeah. So we used to, it's so funny because we don't even really hear this, this um, framework anymore, but um, in the two thousands sort of uh, like, yeah, I would say around 2005 to about 2015 or so you would hear people talk about climate hawks or doves, right? Like how, yeah. how, how worried do we need to be? How aggressive do we, uh, do we need to be in terms of policy or reducing emissions? Now I think we're all climate hawks at this point, right? Like mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. vast majority of us, but for a while, and even when we started our podcast, 
Um, I was with uh, Eric Holthouse um, and Andy Revkin and the two of them, like one of them would be the climate hawk and the other was the climate dove. And and I would sort of sit in the middle and I was like, well, what am I, right? Am I a climate owl? I don't really know. Like what's a paleo climate bird? Um, and then I had this realization. I started getting really frustrated around 2018 where there was this big narrative shift around climate change. There was really a watershed moment. And um, we start to see the Fridays for Future uh, protests. Um, we we get the deep adaptation paper that comes out and stirs, oh, up, yeah. stirs the pot. The Guardian's article about, you know, seven years before we sort of pass a threshold of no return. Um, and, and a lot of anxiety really starts coming out in the narrative. Yeah, and, and that's, anxiety. yeah. And that's a moment where I stopped really hearing from climate deniers and started hearing from people who were worried that there would be no future for them, right? Mm-hmm. I start hearing from youth who start saying things like, will I have a world to grow up in? Is there a point in going to college? Should I have kids? Um, right. And that was deeply scary to me as a scientist and yeah, communicator. And so, um, around that, that fall, I had a near-death experience in Siberia, which oh my God. the topic of another, oh, another podcast, I guess. Um, but, uh, when I came back, one of my good friends and scientists, she actually flew out to, to be with me, um, oh my God. in this, uh, hospital in Yakutsk, um, in the ICU. And, um, she brought me this stuffed muskox. And we just, you know, we talked about like how, how cool they were, right. They're not just, I mean, they're adorable, but also they're, they just have this ice age look to them, right. They're one of the last surviving megafauna that we have in the Arctic. And the more I learned about them, the more inspired I became. I mean, they're matriarchal, which is pretty amazing. Um, and they, they do this thing where when they're threatened, like if there's a predator or something, they will circle up and face outwards and in the center of the circle, they will have the calves or the elderly or the injured, right? The vulnerable. And they just protect the, 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 those among them who need just, you know, a little extra assistance, right? And they'll kind of stand in the face of, of these predators or threats. And they've also survived a ton of climate change, right? So they're, they, to me, they symbolize this remarkable resilience. And also maybe part of their resilience is that they just do things a little bit differently, right? They, um, so I, I in, we can only take, you know, I, I'm always hesitant to not take too much from nature, right? Because, you know, human societies are quite different. But for me, they just became this sort of inspiring symbol. And uh, so instead of a climate hawk or a climate dove, at one point I had this thread that went a bit viral where I said, you know what? Screw it. I'm a climate muskox, right? I don't, <laughs> we are not going, I'm not going to be hopeless in the face of this incredible challenge. You know, we're going to face it head on. We are going to protect the vulnerable. We are going to have a collective response rather than an individualistic response. Um, we are going to be resilient and brave. Um, and I come back to that all the time. It's been, and I've heard from a lot of people that it's a framework that's really helpful for them. And, and when we are constantly given this individualistic message, everything from carbon footprints to, um, just, you know, all of our solutions, um, both the problems and the solutions are often framed in this very individualistic way. Everything feels too much. Of course, people feel despair because I, as one individual, even with a lot of Twitter followers, can't fix this, right? Not alone, but no. yeah, alone, right? But collectively together, that's how things happen. So, yeah. I saw that tweet and and um, for everyone listening, I, um, I sent 
uh, Jacqueline an, an email um, after I saw that tweet because that musk, musk ox, I can't even say that right, musk <laughs> ox tweet really resonated with me because of something that I, I mean, basically the same kind of feeling that you were going through um, was happening to me. And I discovered this whole like other world, I guess, and the world of, of writing and fiction and nonfiction called Hope Punk. Oh, right? Yeah. That was coined back in 2017. So close after your podcast came out um, by someone named Alexander Rowland. And that Muskox thing, this idea of resilience, um, collection and cooperation is basically the foundation of this idea of Hope Punk, where we are moving together towards a better state of being, a better world. And the world's not changed, it's changing. And it's not a utopia, but it's positive. And that um, we'll get there together, but it's worth the fight. And, and that's for me how I keep going too. So I, mm. that, that was such a great um, tweet. So thank you for that because um, it hit me. <laughs> well, and thank you for introducing me to the concept of Hope Punk, right? You sent me this really great essay. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think to me, we're, one of the reasons I find it really inspiring is to see artists and designers and uh, creative writers get involved. Um, because I think what we, one of the things that people are struggling with is that we don't know where we're going towards right? If we don't have a vision of a possible future, we have so many apocalypses, right? We've been really obsessed with apocalyptic narratives and visions. Um, and I, I have so many thoughts about why that is. It would probably again, take up another episode, but you know, when, and so that me, you know, even in our media, right? Our televisions, our, our books, everything. And I understand why that is. I understand the power. I, I consume a lot of apocalyptic narratives, right? I understand the power of those stories to warn us, but we've, what we haven't done is provided alternatives, right? There are a few, a few authors like Kim Stanley Robinson or Monica Byrne, um, who have, who have done some really important work, uh, to, to try to envision different kinds of climate futures that again, aren't they're utopian in the sense that the problem came and we did something about it. Right. right. But um, they don't blow past, right? Like I love Star Trek, um, especially the next generation, yeah. but boy, would it have been really helpful to see how we got from today to this post-scarcity world, right? Like yeah, in between, like, it? yeah, how did you get there? Right. And so <laughs> the, the narratives I'm starting to see that are coming out that are countering these apocalyptic narratives mm -hmm. are very much in that middle ground, right? They're not at the, the future where everything is sorted out. Um, they're, they're sort of the, we started to address it. We had some losses, so they're very gritty and they're very real. Um, but they're still envisioning something that's better than what we have now. And they, they kind of get a little bit at that process of like what we had to lose, what we had to go through to get to that better thing. Yeah. That does bring up something for me because I've experienced this with some people I know, and you may or may not have an answer for this, but, um, you know, climate change is scary, right? These, it's the burden that seems to be always put on the individual, like stop eating meat and get an electric car. It's all on you. And it's really emotionally easy just to say, well, what can one person do? You know, why should I do anything at all? Right. Yeah. It's, it's like, 
the new way that climate deniers are trying to reach us emotionally. But what could someone like me or anyone say to that person that's saying, well, it's these like, what, seven or 10 companies that are making all the problems. And, you know, unless we change them, we're, it's, it's, we're screwed. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. And there's a, a paper on this that really framed my thinking. Um, it's in the journal Global Sustainability. It's by William Lamb and some other folks like Julia Steinberger. Um, and it's called Discourses of Climate Delay. And if you think about it, this idea of it, the problem's too big, I can't solve it alone, um, then who does that serve, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I ask people is who is served by you feeling like you can't make a difference who benefits from you giving up because there's always right there's always someone right this this is not an accident right and we're even seeing the fossil fuel industry shifting now that denial is no longer tenable they're shifting into these modes of um, either technological uh, solutions that are science fiction, they don't exist yet. Well, you know, that's a, that's a discourse of delay, right? We can, we can keep burning fossil fuels because someone will make a magical carbon capture machine that will create little carbon cubes and we'll use them for, to build tiny houses or so, I don't even know, but um, right. So who benefits, right? So that's one of the things that I, that I mentioned. And then I also just point at history, right? Mm-hmm. Look at all these moments where, you know, we, this idea that we, that we somehow earned or deserved a, a life without struggle. This is something that the activist Meg Rutan Walker has really taught me, you know, where did we get that idea, right? That this, this, the sense that we can just check out, right? Imagine if our ancestors, our ancestors had done that. Think of the moments that our parents or our grandparents or our great, great, great grandparents went through where their future was uncertain. Maybe they were immigrants or refugees. Maybe they lived through a war. Um, maybe they lived through, you know, terrible economic times. Maybe they fought uh, for racial or LGBTQ justice, right? There, there have always been struggles. And so, you know, I just try to remind myself, like, what would my life be like if people had given up right? If my answers, if my ancestors had given up. And so, um, so that, yeah, those are sort of the two tacks that I take. One yeah. is who's benefiting from you giving up, right? Because someone is, yeah. And it's probably the fossil fuel industry, right? Yeah. Yes, um, same companies, yeah. same companies that got us here, right? Um, that individualism that got us into this is not going to get us out. Right. And neither is consumerism by the way. Right. Because if you think about it, these really superficial models are either sorry, it's too big. You can't do anything. You might as well just check out or you can just buy your way out, right? Just buy a different car, buy green clothing or, you know, whatever it is, right? Which isn't to say that we don't need those things. And I'm aware that this is a design podcast, right? But we have to be very careful not to fall into the same kinds of traps, Um, not to just, you know, if we continue with extractivism and consumerism, um, then just having a slight change in terms of what we're buying or what we're consuming isn't necessarily going to change the the broader problem, right? It's, it's not enough. So, so what I tell people to do if they're in that mode, that mode of despair is, um, is to actually just get active because for me, when I'm just spinning my wheels, when I'm feeling alone, I, all that does is just make me feel worse, right? It's like doom scrolling, but yeah, exactly. when I, yeah. If I start volunteering, if I start joining up with other people, 
to make a difference on something very concrete and, you know, it, it can be small scale. That's fine. It can be your local soup kitchen, whatever it is. Um, you know, there are so many ways to contri- contribute to fighting the climate crisis, you know, whether you're a doctor or a designer or, you know, or a student, whatever it is, right. You're needed. And mm-hmm. once people start getting engaged, they tell me, they come back to me and say that, you know, those feelings are going away, right? We all have ups and downs, but overall, that feeling of hopelessness and despair tends to dissipate with action. That's, that's great advice. And I, I can, I have experienced that myself. Um, I think for, I don't remember the exact years, but for a number of years, I think I was in that eco anxiety phase until I really discovered that term hope punk and, Mm. and, um, you know, the volunteering, right. That is that, you know, action, regardless of how big or small it is, it's still like that progress, right. As long as you're making that progress, it's worth it. And so I love that. I don't know. Um, I'm just really inspired by the, the climate muskox. It could be <laughs> a fantastic um, design project to um, illustrate that climate muskox. What is what does a climate muskox look like? Yeah, yeah. What does a village or as, like yeah. what does that look like from the city perspective or from a an employer perspective or a community perspective where we are, you know, designing our system so that we are making collective action easy and protecting the vulnerable, right? It's one of the things that comes up a lot. Um, Some of my friends in the disability community have pointed out that um, there's no place for them in an apocalypse, right? Like who are the first people to die in the zombie apocalypse, right? It's, it's going to be the most vulnerable, right? (laughs) So yeah. And so I have friends who are like, I actually can't watch the walking dead, or I can't consume this media because where are the people with wheelchairs? You know, we can't even get around in the world as it is. How are we supposed to get around them? Yeah, they're not there, right? No. So, and I kind of blame The Walking Dead for putting me in this apocalyptic mood, right? I was, yeah. <laughs> I watched that way too much, and then it, I started to think it colored everything that I looked at as that's just going to end up with a zombie apocalypse. You know, what can I do? <laughs> yeah, and I, it's 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 interesting. I think we pulled the wrong lessons out of the out of our sort of zombie craze, um, mm-hmm. and one of them is has was kind of this like. F you, I, I got mine, you know, kind of attitude, like just right. this turning inwards. What I think is realistic, unfortunately, is, and this is kind of channeling Mary Heglar, where she she talks about how uh, in, in the Hot Take newsletter, she recently said that what scares her the most about climate change is actually what we will do to each other, mm-hmm. right? How that anxiety causes people to turn inward um, and it fuels fascism and white supremacy, right? Because as you become oh, yeah. this, you know, I'm anxious about the economy or whatever and what that actually translates into in terms of our actions, right? So in times where we're stressed out, you know, people often turn inward rather than outward. So instead of checking on our neighbors, instead of seeing how we can help others, we are stockpiling ammunition or getting into canning or whatever, you know, like we're, we're just worrying about ourselves. Um, Is that the tragedy of the commons, right? Where if there's five apples and there's a lot of people in the community, you take on that survivalist role and you take all the apples as opposed to cutting them up, sharing them with, with everyone. Right. And there are other models out there, right? Mm-hmm. We Archaeology shows us other models of how people can respond to challenging times. Um, the paleoecological record shows us other models of how e- you know, ecological systems can weather 
difficult times. Um, it does not have to be this kind of cutthroat individualistic response. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, those are the communities, both human and ecological that tend to do worse. Yeah, I agree. I think the, the good thing about, um, the walking dead or zombie analogy is that one of the, I think, positive things I took away from watching that is like, what would you do as a human being when faced with these type of, you know, tough situations, right? Climate maybe being one of them. Do you just, you know, what do you do to survive? Do you survive together? Or like you said, do you just turn inwards and survive alone? And so, um, from the hope punk standpoint, from the climate musk ox standpoint, I think we need that collective. I know we need the collective, not just, you know, the hero, the one hero. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I think, um, you know, yeah, there will always be the roving bands of uh, marauders who just want to take instead of grow crops um, until they run out of ammunition, because at some point there's, you know, there's no ammunition factories. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the more robust model really is, you know, the, the people who look out for each other, right. Mm -hmm. It's the people who are caring for each other and that's, that's survival, right. Because one of the things that I think the really the walking dead impressed on me was again, it's not the zombies, you know, it's, it's who we are. It's how right. we maintain our identity, our humanity mm -hmm. that kind of determines whether we survive or not. And I'm putting survive in scare quotes here, because if we survive as a bunch of roving violent cannibals uh, who just are brutal to each other, that that's not a win, right? No. The, the, the continuation of, of the homo sapiens genetic line is not the end goal, right? It's it's, it's our humanity. Right. And yeah. so we, we should take that to heart when we think about how to address the climate crisis and just running off and, and going to your bunker and saying, sorry, everyone, it's the civilization's going to collapse. I'm just, I'm just going to go eat my canned goods, <laughs> which I see some thought leaders say things like that. Yeah. That's scary. Right. It is scary because no one is disposable mm -hmm. in the climate crisis. Right. People with disabilities are not disposable. Um, black and brown people who live in cities that are being threatened with sea level rise and have nowhere to go, they're not disposable. And just because I happen to have a safe place to retreat to, you know, that's to me, that's like, I'm sorry, but you might as well just be the roving cannibal, right? <laughs> like right, you're not, right. if you're not taking care of each other, then what's the point? Right. If you're not part, part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Yeah. Well, we're going to pause here for a few moments for a commercial message. And when we get back, we're going to talk more about how you can bring what uh, Jacqueline does into your design classroom. Do you want to help design a better world? Start by subscribing to Evolve CPG, a podcast featuring the purpose-driven entrepreneurs, executives, and consultants behind the most impact-driven brands in the world. You'll learn how innovative leaders are leaning into their purpose, how better for the world brands are scaling positive impact, and how the product industry is solving some of the world's biggest problems. Be part of the evolution. Find Evolve CPG wherever you get your podcasts and visit EvolveCPG.com to learn more.
Where do young designers see themselves at the intersection of climate change and innovation? And how can we teach that intersection in the classroom? Designers are problem solvers, capable of imagining solutions for a more sustainable future. We have a bigger role to play in all phases of the design process, not just the beginning. My name is Rachel Cifarelli, graphic designer, recent college grad, and part of the Climate Designers EDU team. And after graduating, I realized today's classrooms tend to skip over that universal side of design. So if you're a design educator, I want to hear from your students. Help set in motion the first ever project that centers students at the intersection of design education and climate change. I want to know what your students think about sustainable design, how they see climate change impacting their future careers, and what even comes to mind when they hear the term climate design. Send your students to climatedesigners.org slash edu slash new wave survey to take the five question survey or sign up for an interview with me. Help me inform a new wave of design education, one that teaches every designer how to be a climate designer. All right, uh, welcome back everybody. I'm still here with Jacqueline and we're gonna go um, a little bit uh, more into design and uh, climate. And uh, specifically, I'm, I'm really interested in Jacqueline and your thoughts about the work you do and how you feel some of that could find its way into a creative space like a design classroom. This is such a big question and it's something I've been thinking about since you first talked to me about this. And I have a few thoughts and I think one of them is, um, you know, we grapple with the scale of time, right? And the sense of, dynamic changing nature in ways that even I as a paleoecologist have a hard time communicating that to people in ways that don't make it sound like I'm just saying change is natural. We don't have to worry about it. Right. right. So giving people deep time perspectives or long-term perspectives, I think is, is important. It's a challenge thinking from a design perspective about what you know, how, how do the things that we are going to design or build stay resilient to, to landscapes that might be changing in ways we can't see, um, we can't envision, right? Um, how do we build things to last a thousand years instead of 10 years, right? Um, how do we understand the natural range of variation in the environments that we're living and working in? I mean, if you look at things like everything from wildfires to droughts, to floods, to hurricanes, yes, some of these things are exacerbated by human caused climate change, but we also know that some of those same kinds of processes have happened in the past, um, at, when in periods of warmer climates, right? So these, they should never have been surprises. Um, and so I just think from, from a design perspective, understanding what the past is telling us is possible, um, give, I think should give us, should inform how we think about designing all of the systems that we're operating in. Yeah. I can imagine just as an example, the, uh, some similar work that designers do in, we'll just take like a fast food example where, you know, someone designed, um, fast food, like a plastic container for a salad, a healthy organic salad and this, plastic container that lasts about what 10 minutes in terms of you eating it but then hundreds of thousands of years in the fossil record right I, could you imagine 
future paleoecologists drilling down like you did in that bog and then they come up with one of the layers with you know plastic packaging right like that's yeah I mean if you I don't know if you ever talked to archaeologists much but what we mostly have to tell us about the past is people's trash right that was true like what what lasts right it's broken pottery shards it's Mm -hmm. discarded bones or shells it's broken tools um it's not always the case but you know, very rarely do we find, uh, it's very exceptional to find sort of an intact in place home, right? It's, it's going to be the detritus, the things that were discarded. Um, and you know, in the past, those were made out of natural materials like clay or bone or stone. Mm -hmm. Um, but now we've sort of, you know, that's going to be true about future archeologists, right? If an alien archeologist came back to earth or came to earth in, a, you know, in 500,000 years, you know, what are they going to find? It's going to be our metal and our plastic, right? A lot of stuff that was designed and designed, you know, unfortunately badly. Does, yeah. Or it, well, that's the thing that was designed perfectly for yeah, that's a good argument. You could the do. moment, right? And yeah. yeah, but designed badly only in retrospect. Correct. So I think having that long term perspective of what would a, I mean, I think about this all the time, but what would, I mean, I would love to know, do designers ever ask themselves, what would the designer a hundred years from now or a thousand years from now think about what I'm making? I think some do, but I think that's a great project connecting to what you do, right? It's like, what do you want your legacy to be as, as a designer a hundred years from now? I mean, someone looks back at the things that you made and, you know, they, they're digging them up in a landfill. Yeah. Or even, and don't even be afraid to push it further. Right. If a hundred, if, you know, if, if, if you need to dip your toes in and like 10 or a hundred years is like, as far as you can go to start with, yeah. that's great, but like stretch even further. Right. Cause I, to me, a hundred years is nothing like a mm. hundred years is smaller than the, than the uncertainty around some of my samples. Right. Um, sure, you go hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah. I mean, I'm, it's the, it's smaller than the margin of error on some of the ages of the dung, the woolly mammoth dung I have in my lab, right? Oh, Which wow. is 50,000 years old or something, <laughs> right? Woolly mammoth dung sitting around you in your lab? Woolly mammoth, woolly rhino, uh, ancient step bison, uh, ice age horses. Yeah. We've... <laughs> you have a cool job. I like this. <laughs> we work a lot with poop. It's kind of funny. Um, so it, I, I guess from a design perspective, right? Like feces is incredibly useful and valuable, um, in our, but it's waste, right? <laughs> so. It is. It is. Yeah. But from an ecosystem perspective, everything gets used. Everything gets reused, right? Waste There's is food, right? Waste, waste is food, waste is fuel, waste is all kinds of things. Um, it's yeah. So that's what I would say is, you know, okay, give it a hundred years, but try a thousand, try 10,000, yeah. right? What would it, what would the world look like right now? If we thought about the implications of our decisions that we make right now mm-hmm. in a thousand years, that's that's similar to that seven generations concept mm-hmm. in a lot of yeah. cultures, right? Yeah, because this is not how we're raised as you know Westerners, right? But no, these, not at all. this, I'm not make, I'm not like, you know, this is something I've learned through paleoecology, but then I run across it, you know, in other cultures all the time. And if you think, well, that's that's not relevant, okay, well, what was going on one thousand years ago, and how is that relevant to today? Yeah. What was going on two thousand years ago? How is that relevant to today? I'm sure you can think of at least two or three things that happened 2000 years ago that, you know, shape 
our civilization now, right? I mean, it's not that hard if you stretch your mind. So these are relevant timescales. Yeah. And unfortunately, right. For someone in my position as a designer or design educator, right. We're talking about four week increments, right. You're in this moment. um, If you're working out in the design practitioner world, like your client says, I need this in a week. So it's a challenge, right. Um, in that moment to say, God, what's going to happen to this thing hundred thousand years ago that in the future that I'm making right now, like what's this lasting impact. And so I think that's part of my mission as a design educator is to graduate these designers who are asking these questions from the outset, right. Mm -hmm. Not, um, having to somehow grasp it as they're adults, right. Just kind of in the beginning. Yeah. And it, it can be, it can, once you become you, once you develop that muscle, right. Cause I do believe that thinking across time scales is not something most of us do natively, right. We mm. have to practice. I, and sometimes I wonder if I came to paleoecology because my brain just likes to do this anyway, am I a big systems thinker or did was there some other hook? And then I flexed the flexed and developed this muscle. And now I can sort of think in really long time scales or short, or kind of swap back, back and forth between them, but it's not something that comes naturally. Right. And so how can you, you know, how can you push yourself to develop that so that it becomes a core principle, just like some of the other things, like, you know, any kind of ethic or, or justice or sustainability or other things that, you know, they take practice, right. Because we have to first unlearn Right. what we've been, you know, the deep programming that we come to our work with, and then we have to learn something new and it takes time and practice. But yeah, yeah I mean, I, even I totally my, even my modern colleagues have the same problem, right? Their studies are three to five years long, right? Mm-hmm. Sorry to cut yeah. you off. No, you didn't. Um, I was agreeing with you in that uh, you said the magic word for me, systems thinking, magic phrase, systems thinking. And I'm working with that with my design students, you know, they're going to be juniors or seniors and there I'm basically asking them to like think small and think big scale at the same time, mm. but also in the same moment, unlearn the design process that they were, they've taught the first two years or maybe longer of their college education. And that's, I'm in physical therapy right now for my calf because I've been walking wrong. I found out. So I have to oh. relearn a new way to walk while still walking at the same time. And that's sort of how I've been like now imagining how my students feel learning systems thinking. Um, but I think it's for the benefit, right? Cause it's, it's about time scale. It's about detail and it's about like that big picture, how everything is connected. And hopefully then maybe um, a designer could see that hundred thousand years in the future, maybe about, gosh, let's not that let that happen. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a book, um, that I read a green history of the world. Um, and it was, it's been a long time since I've read it, so I don't know how well it holds up, but there's a moment in there where he says, we need to get used to the idea of a million years being a relevant, like a politically relevant amount of time. Hmm, right. Wow. And it's, and that, that really blew my mind, right. This idea that, yeah, I mean, we need to, so much depends on that. Right. Because we can imagine a million bucks, we could imagine a million years. Right. Yeah. But I mean, it's hard, right. So for, yeah. I mean, a million bucks is actually 
I find really difficult to wrap my brain around, right? Like I've never the, seen it before. So yeah, right. There's like a whole scale of money that I, yeah, yeah. I can't, you know, billionaires, I can't even wrap my brains around. So um, I think it takes imagination. And I think people who are poised to create and pull, you know, design, design things that have never been seen before um, to draw from, you know, nature or other sources of inspiration. But, you know, we desperately need what, what we've been doing isn't working. We need something different. Right. And, mm. and so I, I think that people who are in the process of envisioning and then manifesting something new, um, that's, that's powerful to me. I mean, that's yeah for people who want to talk about how do I make a difference? Like to me, that's where the action is, right? It's yeah, we can vote and, you know, we can legislate, but on some level, we're all still operating in these same systems. And how do we burst out of that into something different? And I'm, I'm more and more interested in outside the box solutions, um, just because we haven't really seen a lot of movement. Um, there, there is, a, there are reasons to be hopeful, right? We have seen the needle moving when it comes to climate change, but, yeah, yeah. but when the solutions start looking like the source of the problem, Hmm, then, then it's like, again, we're in this failure of imagination. That's, that's the limiting factor, right? It's not political will, whatever that is, it's imagination. Yeah. That's where I hope, I hope there's that word again, hope um, (laughs) that design designers can be part of that, right? We pride ourselves in saying we create this quote unquote out of the box solutions, but are we really, you know, I think sometimes we are, but um, your response there also is like, almost like you read my mind to what my next question was in that, um, storytelling. One of the big things that most of my guests and some of my listeners talked about last season was they really wonder if we need to retell this story or rethink the way that we're telling or rebranding climate change or climate action. Hmm. And I'm wondering what your thoughts about that are. I mean, I, I, if I understand your question, right. I, I think a hundred percent in that, um, you know, we are, so we have a few challenges, right? There's this, and I think a lot of them are hinging on this, um, conceptual problem that we have when we think about climate change. What I mean is to say, we're very, very much a binary society, right? We think in terms of black, white, yes, no, good, mm-hmm. bad, apocalypse, utopia, right? Right. And yeah. reality is always messier. There are more continua, right? Are you healthy or unhealthy? Like, well, you know, like what? No. Right. In between, and so, in between. I'm yeah, it's all, the, it's always <laughs> the in between. And that's not a compromise. That's not giving in. That's just reality. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, um, when it comes to things like climate change, especially around this concept of thresholds or however many years we have left until we've, we've locked in climate change, whatever. Um, I'm very, you know, the 1.5 degrees Celsius target, for example, was always very ambitious, um, given how much warming we've already experienced when that commitment was made. Um, and the lack of, of aggressive action, we have seen some things like the, 
decline in coal happening faster than predicted, um, the uptick in renewables and the cost of renewables going down faster than predicted. Talk to talk about you know design relevant topics. Um, those those are reasons to be hopeful for sure. Um, some people have talked about well maybe as soon as we stop burning fossil fuels we'll clean up the atmosphere and we'll lose kind of a reflective blanket of pollution that might cause us to warm a little bit in the short term, right? What, you know, we can quibble about those things, but regardless, the biggest uncertainty when we think about the future of our planet is always, has always been people. And if we are locked into this idea that we are either fine or we're screwed, um, then that doesn't, that's, that doesn't reflect reality. It doesn't reflect how anything no. works and it doesn't, it doesn't give us any room, Right. So when we blow past that 1.5 target, if that happens, which probably it will, if I had to bet, um, and again, not because I think that the earth has these like runaway feedback loops that we don't know about. I think it's just people. Right. If that happens, if we blow past 1.5, I am very worried that there will be people who will, who will respond to that by giving up. Oh, right. game over going, going off to my compound now. Right. <laughs> um, uh, going to run off to my cabin in the woods. I give up. And when in reality, 1.5 is better than two degrees, two degrees is better than 2.5, then three, then four, right? My God, right. Um, every fraction of a degree is worth fighting for. And if we are locked into this binary model of thinking, then we are buying into a lie, right? And again, who benefits if we yeah. buy into that lie that um, our actions don't matter? And I think about it, you know, the way I, the way I talk about it is that a no harm scenario is not, was never possible because harm has already happened, right? People have lost their lives because of sea level rise and storms and heat waves. Um, people have been displaced from their communities because of climate change already. People have health problems. They have lost their livelihoods, et cetera, because of climate change already harm has already happened. So you can already throw the binary in the trash, right? So we can prevent more harm by doing more now. And every, every live saved, every, um, you know, just, we'll just, we'll end it right there. Every live saved is worth it. Right. Yeah. That's that whole punk thing, right? Like fighting yeah. for every fraction fighting for every life. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we're running out of time here, but I do have one of my favorite questions for last that I'm always intrigued by the answers. Um, and that is if, you were asked to teach a design class or a design project. Um, what would your uh, ideal um, ideal one be, and why? Oh God, I've I know you warned me about this question, and I've been <laughs> I've been thinking about it, and I I just I, I have so many ideas. It's a challenging um, one, right? It's like everything's yeah. on the line here, you know. Yep. <laughs> so I mean, I would I would bring it back to some of the things that I've been talking about, right? Like, how do we envision a more hopeful and just future, right? Assuming that climate change is going to keep happening for a little bit, what does the world look like in a hundred or a thousand years? And how, yeah, and how, and how can we move towards that? How can we roadmap that towards a better future in ways that can affect people in positive ways now, right? Give somewhere, some, give people somewhere to go. Um, in their imagination so that we can actually do that in real life. So I would say that would be one of them. And it kind of ties back to this long-term thinking concept I've been talking about. And then the other one is, um, again, just 
helping us as scientists visualize and communicate concepts like uncertainty, like breaking the binary. How do we make it clear to people, right? So there's like, there's like a clock ticking down to this, to this seven-year window, right? And that tells us that it's game over. And, and that's just not true. So how do we communicate to people that every fraction of a degree matters, that this much sea level rise is better than that much, right? Yeah, I love that. That's the um, climate musk ox um, slogan. Every fraction of a degree matters, right? Yeah. I'm I'm seeing like, not to make more stuff, but to know you're, we're on a collective, (laughs) there's a shirt, there's a hat, right? There's a sticker even that you're on the climate musk ox team and every fraction of a degree matters. And yeah. And you know that like, that's, that's just a, a framework that if you can take that ethic with you, um, then I think that's really powerful. And that, that ethic of, of community, of care for your community, of not turning inward and, and fighting individualism, fighting binary thinking, Mm -hmm. discarding the tools that have not helped us and trying something different. Then I think that's worth it. It is. It's definitely worth it. And it's worth having you on the program today, uh, Jacqueline. Um, it was a great conversation, and I hope everyone listening has has uh, been inspired. There's hope for sure. Um, Jacqueline, where can we find you online again? So you can find me. I'm I'm very uh, very much online on Twitter at Jacqueline Gill. Um, uh, I recently. Twitter famous. Mildly Twitter famous. Um, <laughs> the fifth, I think the fifth most followed climate person on Twitter, um, uh, climate scientist. Uh, and then um, I'm also, I recently joined TikTok uh, as oh, Anthropocene. Right. Um, and, uh, or you can just email me at Jacqueline.gill at main.edu. I will. Well, thank you, Jacqueline. Uh, thanks for joining me today. And um, I wish you well. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. This podcast is written, produced, and engineered by me. Designed by Boshul Rashik and Mark O'Brien, with music by Casual Motive. Next week on Climify, we're joined by Dr. Wesleyan Ashton from IIT in Chicago to learn more about systems thinking and design, as we heard in today's episode. Um, as one of the texts the work of Adrienne Marie Brown and emergent strategy, uh, which, mm-hmm. you know, it takes the, this very organic approach for thinking about, you know, like, like how we're related to, to ecosystems, uh, but centering sort of Black, Indigenous um, perspectives um, and, and that, you know, we, we want to drive towards a systems change that that's more equitable. And, and so uh, we use systems thinking to kind of say, okay, um, what is the problem that I'm interested in? Um, what are the various variables, uh, the various actors who are involved? What's the distribution of power? Mm. Uh, what are the biases that, that come into, into play? And you know, how does more diverse perspectives being involved in that conversation change the shape of the solutions that we developed? Thanks for listening to Climify. 
If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To catch all the latest on Climify, you can follow us on Instagram at Climify Podcast. Climify is part of Climate Designers. Learn more at climatedesigners.org slash edu.